Welcome to the Jane Bond Show, from execution to excellence. And I am your host, Jane Bond, the serial entrepreneur who will be sharing with you valuable life lessons and interviewing influencers from around the country who have broken through to success, along with giving you advice on navigating through the game. Today, our topic is I Will Survive. Our special guest is a fighter and the first black woman to chair the Miami Beach Chambers Women's Business Council. She tells us about growing up in Connecticut and the challenges she faced with being mixed race within her own black community. She also shares with us the ugliness of being abandoned by family and friends after getting pregnant as a young female and left to fend for herself with a non-deserving partner. Lastly, she talks to us about her battle with stage four breast cancer and living through the harsh treatments, all the while remaining a true champion and advocate for women and youth educational advancement. She is what we call a servant leader. Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to my special guest, Deanne Connolly Graham. Hey, Deanne, how are you? Good morning. I'm fabulous. Thank you. Oh, it's so good to hear your voice. I just feel like I just left you last week. <laughs> I know. I'm so happy you were able to make it. It was terrific to see you. You too, you too. And I'm happy that you have agreed to come on from execution to excellence today. Thank you. Thank my, you my so pleasure. Much. Great. So, Deanne, um, we have a lot to go over because you have had an amazing career, it looks like. So I kind of want to dive right in and start with a little bit of your backstory. And I know you said you're from Connecticut. Tell us about Connecticut, growing up there. Well, it, it was, I'm actually, I was actually born in London. Um, my family oh, okay. from the Caribbean. Yeah, my family's from, my mother's from Jamaica, my father from Grand Cayman. And they did the usual migration, um, going to school in London. My mother went to nursing school. My dad joined the British RAF. And so my sister and I were born in London, but we left when I was three. So I lost the lovely British accent I heard I had. Um, okay. And, um, and we stayed in Jamaica for about a year while my parents settled in Connecticut. So wow. that's a typical a typical Caribbean migration, yes. And so that oh, we wouldn't absolutely. be stressed out as children while they were struggling to build a home and so on. Um, we spent a little bit of time with her mom uh, in Jamaica. But I did I did grow up in Connecticut. It was um, it was a, a great experience. Our grandmother lived with us, and so there was a very full family. Um, uh, atmosphere. It was at the time, you know, when you're in something, you don't know whether it's good or bad. You're just there. And um, yes, of course, because I had a, a beautiful family, a loving family. It was a great experience. I do recall, though, and it's very interesting, um, a couple of incidents with um, racial challenges. Um, oh, I was going to get to that. I mean, <clears throat> of course, being in Connecticut at that time. <laughs> But again, it was interesting because my family, I guess growing up in the Caribbean, there wasn't that racial issue. So I didn't really understand 
Um, and funnily enough, the um, many of the problems came from black girls that I went to school with. Um, because of my multicultural mix, I'm very light, and I inherited oh, yes. blue-green eyes from a great-grandmother who was French. So I had a, a, a different look. And I think it was, um, not I think, I know it was, um, uh, maybe jealousy isn't the right word, but I got a lot of animosity from um, a number of the black girls in the school that would tease me, they would push me, they would bully me. Um, And I wasn't friends with them, not because they were black, but because they acted stupid. (laughs) Right. You know, it's funny, it's funny that you talk about that, because I kind of had that same thing going on. My family is, you know, we have a a cultural mix, too, you know, but I, I, personally, I really don't think I got much of that, you know, you know, on my exterior, you know, with the light eyes, but a lot of my family definitely has that, too. And funny enough, my grandfather, on my father's side, was Jamaican. So that's oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you were mm-hmm. talking, I was like, wow. I mean, I wasn't, I don't recall anyone sharing anything about them migrating from England or anything, but um, interesting enough, I had the same issues in high school. Not, no, not high school. I would say uh, grade school more so yeah. because of the same reasons. And, right. you know, I right. think that's, a, a, that's definitely a cultural thing within the black community happening to right. each other. Um, and right. like you said, you, you can't peg it as jealousy. I think it's more deep-rooted than that. Right, right. And, so, and you yeah, know, what was funny was, yeah, it was actually, I think I was a junior high when that was going on. I don't recall so much issues in high school, but, um, but junior high was definitely challenging. But in high school, I had the opposite um, incident happen. I had a really good, she was one of my best friends. Um, her name was Evelyn. She was white. And I would hang out at her house and we, you know, we, I would sleep over and so on and so forth. And her father was the typical Archie Bunker type. And I mean, he <laughs> kind of looked like him. Yeah. And my girlfriend, I think rebelled by, she was dating a black boy from school. I'll never forget him. He was mixed. He was actually uh, Native American and black, very handsome, with a huge afro, very tall, and his name was Billy. And he called the house one day while I was there. Now, bear in mind, I had been her friend for a number of years. I'd been coming to her house, as I said, sleeping over. And he called, and the father started getting, I guess he knew he was on the phone. He started getting really mad, and I was in the room with him, and he starts um, cursing and talking about, I I think it's disgusting. Black and white um, are not supposed to be mixing. And he looks at me, because he never really paid much attention to me, but he looks at me and he says, well, what do you think about that? And I said, (laughs) you're black. (laughs) Well, and he didn't know. So I said to him, well, in my little arrogance as a 13-year-old, well, you know, I think, no, I think I might have been older, maybe 14, 15. <clears throat> I said, well, I'm, I'm the product of an interracial relationship, and I think they're great. And he looked <laughs> at me, and his eyes just got big, and he started screaming at me, get out. You need to tell me you're black. Get out. Get out. And he starts screaming at me, 
And I just looked at him like, what is wrong with you? And my, my girlfriend came running out of the room. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe you told him you're black. I said, what do you mean? Get out, get out. He's screaming at me. And I, I left, of course, and was never allowed back in her home again. Wow. So, you know, that was the opposite experience. And at the time, I, I was young. I thought it was funny. My girlfriend was very upset um, because, obviously, I guess all this time, her father – like I said, he never really looked at me, but he did not think I was black or knew I was black. And so um, when he discovered that, I guess he was just horrified that um, this black person had been in his home and eating at his table and all of that. And but, apparently um, she didn't tell him either. <laughs> no, no, because she knew of his prejudices. Um, of course. But, um, you know, eventually she broke up with Billy and, you know, I guess it couldn't sustain. But it, it was just, you know, as I say, different experiences on, from different racial viewpoints. So that was, you know, that was my time in Connecticut. But, I, but it was an enjoyable time. I went to Connecticut College. I hung out at the Coast Guard Academy, and um, it was, uh, which was across the street. And um, it, was, it was fun days. Gave my mother a lot of trouble. I was, I was um, very um, kind of wild and, and just wanted to have fun and, you know, my, my poor mother, you know, Jamaican parents are very educational oh, education yes. and lift yourself up and, you know, only date, you know, boys that can bring you somewhere enough. I was, I was always looking for the fun, wild ones. And um, so I, I did so give my mother So those were challenges for you. <laughs> a lot of challenges. So you had a quite a few challenges. challenges for you growing up, huh? Yes, ma'am. You know, that's interesting, you know, because um, – Growing up in England, uh, I know quite a few English people, um, and growing up in England, you don't find the same racial uh, prejudice towards blacks or Caribbeans as you do here. Um, and that's, that's interesting to me because when right. you're in England, there's so many interracial marriages. I mean, mm-hmm. Caribbean people have been migrating there for years, and then there's so many colonized um, Caribbean uh, countries, you know, that mm-hmm. are here. And then right. it's, it's just, it's such a, a backwards way of thinking, you know, and right. you just don't see it. And when I go to England, you know, my husband's English, so you know that. But oh. when you go to England, yeah, my husband's English. He's a Mancunian. He's from Manchester, the northern part of England. And okay. I just don't see it there. You know, they have their own right. issues with racism for other cultures. Culture. Right, Muslims but, and things you know, like that. Yeah. Not with the Caribbeans. I mean, that's right. just normal. Right. So that's really right. funny, you know, that we spoke about that. And also the growing up, the, you know, the irony of being partially Jamaican was funny to me because I had a girl in high school. No, I think I was in junior high school. She used to beat me up all the time. I would come home. I would have to find another way to get home because she would be waiting for me. And she was Jamaican. And one day I just kind of stood up to her. And she beat me up again still, but I stood up to her and she never beat me up again. (laughs) Oh, my And I never got around to telling her that my family was part Jamaican. So it's funny when I think about that. Right. That's really interesting. So, you know... Speaking of those challenges growing up, did you have any other challenges um, before you left Connecticut? Um, While you attended college. Right. No, I was actually, well, I was a a peace activist from an early age. So 
I got myself involved in um, in the peace movement. So I was okay. very um, I was very engaged with that anti-war and demonstrations and things like that, which I still do to this day. Not as much as I did back then, but um, but that was interesting. <clears throat> I did get involved with. Um, a man that was totally unsuitable for me, but um, it kind of derailed my education a bit. Um, as I say, my my family, and especially my mother, was very distraught. Their number one daughter, who was so brilliant and so beautiful, was tying herself up with this know-nothing. And um, it was pretty dramatic, actually. It was It was a pretty horrible time and my parents made the decision to sell their home and move away and um and so in my third year of college my parents left and I became pregnant and I left school and um I had been living um, with this man and it was it was uh was a rough time uh, my my parents were right. He's not the right person for me. And um, but there was um, a physical attraction and a chemistry that when you're young you don't pay much attention to other things. And so um, the relationship was very rocky. He was extremely possessive and jealous and restricting my movements and behavior because any man that looked on me would instantly fall in love with me and try to take him take me from him was kind of his mental um attitude and i'm a very um open and loving and affectionate type of person i'm always hugging and kissing people and he would get jealous if i would hug my (laughs) uncle and yeah so you know it was it was a very challenging time and um it, it was a challenging time and so yeah. I eventually, um, I went back to school and I did, I ended up leaving him. Um, but here I am now with a single parent, as a single parent. Um, and so it was, it was a challenge, but, um, but I got through it and I went back and forth a couple of times with him because I frankly did not have um, strong enough um, self-respect for myself. And I, I look back on those days and realize that a lot of it had to do with my not embracing my own intelligence and beauty and realizing that I deserved better. And so I struggled with my weight my whole life. And I think that also was a debilitating factor because he was so quote unquote in love with me. It was, it was obsessive. But I told myself, oh, he just loves me so much, and so no one's going to love me as much as he does, so I need to deal with this. So I had a lot of dysfunction um, yeah. in my younger days. <clears throat> so well, those are formative years also, you know, and being out there by yourself and, and getting pregnant, I mean, you know, and then having the insecurities on top of that. And, you know, when you have someone that's not a good suitor for you and you have insecurities, sometimes those things kind of, you know, get into our head and we get in our own way of finding out or discovering who we really are because we have someone else in control. But, you know, Mm -hmm. I take my hat off to you for being, you know, honest enough to even be on the show and share that with us because a lot of people wouldn't. Um, And you turned out beautifully. 
<laughs> well, thank you. No, I you know, there you that. have it. At least you acknowledged it, you know, at a certain time in your life and um, got it together. And it happens yeah. to us, you know. Yeah. But as long as we can pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, we're good. Right, right, right. Well, you know, as I say, it was it was a challenging time, and 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 I'm grateful for. Um, I had a sister, a baby sister, who was there for me. She never ever abandoned me, even when the rest of the family did. And she helped me get away, literally um, running and hiding in the bushes with my son and um, going with, um, you know, leaving behind. Because I worked also, and so I contributed to the household and bought things, but I left everything behind with a suitcase and a large plaque that my father had bought for me that I had brought with me. I still have it to this Um, it's a, a very large art piece that depicts Diana the Huntress. And for some reason, that um, as large as it was, it's a huge wall piece, I found a way to get it down to Florida, and I still have it on my wall. But I left everything else behind and a couple of suitcases, and we, we came down to Florida, which is where my parents moved when they left Connecticut. <clears throat> so I ran back home to mother. And, of course, you know, parents are, are, most parents, good parents are unconditional love and, of course, you know, accepted me back and, um, and helped me get back on my feet. And um, I went to Jamaica for a little while and okay. uh, lived with my grandfather and did, um, just got myself together. I lost 40 pounds. I was eating great food, walking up and down the mountains doing a little teaching in a, in a little country school up there. Those were some of the happiest days of my life. Um, you know, Jamaican children in the country are so, they're so loving and appreciative and, you know, they're running around without shoes on, but they're bright and they're, they're just beautiful, beautiful children. And so I enjoyed my, my time there and um, came back. And I'm embarrassed to say uh, my ex came down to Florida. He kept trying to find me and so on and so forth. And um, that same physical attraction was there and had a one-night stand. And lo and behold, I got pregnant again. And oh, so wow. Okay. I was like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. This is eight years later. And, um, of course, everyone is saying, you know, you need to have an abortion. You're not going to be with this man. You're already a single mom. And um, I don't um, – I'm pro-choice, and I don't um, feel that anyone has a right to tell anyone, you know, what to do with their body, a woman, rather. And at the time, okay. I was not – although I knew I would never be with this man ever, ever again, I, I just could not – see myself having an abortion. So my mother was, of course, very upset and um, ended up having to move out because I was staying with her. And I and what year was this son. around? Do you mind me asking? What time oh, period was this you around? You know, my second son is now 32. Okay. So if you do the math, I'm not good at remembering years, but um, <clears throat> it was 32 years ago. <laughs> oh, late 80s. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I was now in Florida with two children as a single parent and staying with friends and kind of finding my way. Um, And, of course, my parents did come around and, and, you know, loved both my sons very much. 
And that's the, the only thing why I don't regret that relationship, as dysfunctional and ridiculous as it was, um, emotionally abusive and all of that. I have two incredible sons um, from that relationship that are just above and beyond phenomenal. My eldest Great. is a college professor now at Johns Hopkins University. He is Fantastic. actually a world-renowned historian, and he uh, has an award-winning book. And my second son is an award-winning music producer. He, um, he was a drummer when he was nine years old. He had that um, instinct that he wanted to be a drummer. And um, he started, and he just never stopped. And I told him, okay, this is not an inexpensive hobby. You're either going to do it <laughs> right. as a career or you can't do it because I can't afford this. And uh, he said, nope, I want to do this as a career. And he did. When he was 13, Fantastic. I was booking him in, in clubs around Hollywood, Florida, and he was playing. And, um, and at 18, he started his own company and was booking bands. And, um, you know, he made music his career. But he got tired of drumming every night. And so he, he learned how to be a, um, a producer, a, studio, a music producer. And he produces music for top talent. And he's won, I believe, five platinum albums working with people like Wale and uh, Celine Dion and um, all, all of these big music people. And so you see that foundation went far. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. foundation went very far. And carrying that plaque must have been like a symbol from your family, you know, to keep that foundation going. Because sometimes when we think it's not there, it's still there. We make our mistakes, but the foundation always grabs us back if we really understand where we came from. So, That's I mean, so look, look at that. So Your two sons are amazing. Right. I mean, yep. yeah, it was rocky and you had some issues. But one thing you did say, I carried that large plaque all the way to Florida because it was from my dad, and you had to mm. take that with you. That got you going first. Yeah, yeah that's something that you needed to, to anchor you and right. get you out of there, and you did get out of there, and now look. I mean, okay, right. you went back, you had a mistake, but you have two beautiful sons. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the great thing, and, I think for me as a parent, because I always felt like being a mother was what I loved more than anything, and as a parent – when you see your children with talent or you see them with passion for something, that's what you support and that's what you encourage. So my eldest son struggled through high school. He, you know, was needing tutors. He had to go to summer school. He struggled. But as soon as he hit college, it was almost as if a light bulb went off because he was able to really pursue things and learn the way he needed to. And he excelled so much. He went on for his master's, his doctorate. And as I say now, he's, he's a, a tenured college professor at Johns Hopkins, actually the first tenured history professor in the history of Johns Hopkins University um, who is black. So he's, he's really, really excelled, right. But again, he found his way. And when people find their way and they find their passion, that's when the support, you have to support them. And my second son, you know, he wanted music. And some people would say, oh, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer. Well, no, if this is what you really love, you pursue the music. Just know that it's going to mean practicing every night. I actually sat in his 
classes, so I knew what he was supposed to be practicing and learning. And um, But he loved it, and as long as you love it, it's not work, right? I mean, when you're exactly. 10 years old, sometimes you don't want to practice every day, but that's where the, the parenting comes in. No, no, you sit down and you practice. This is what you wanted to do, you're going to do it, you know? But, um, but you know what you I, call that. We call that from execution to excellence. There you That's go. what the show is all about. <laughs> you have to execute everything you have inside of you, whether, you know, it's a passion, it's awareness or understanding. No matter what, you have to work hard. You have to show up. You have to be consistent. You know, right. that's what's so important about getting to the place you want to be. And if that exactly. place is being excellent at what you have, what you need to do or what you want to do, then you have to execute no matter what. No matter what. And that's right. what I share with people all the time. If you want it bad enough, guess what? You have to put everything you have inside of you behind it to get there. And that's what they did along with the support system. Yes. And sometimes they don't have a support system, so they have to rely on that drive and that ambition. Exactly so. Yep. And they find it along the way. You know, thank God you were there and you were able to support what they had, what they felt as though they wanted inside, and they discovered it early. And not everybody gets that opportunity. So I take my right. hat off to you for being there as a mother well, and well, understanding. Well, thank you. Well, I appreciate that, and, but I will add that it does take a village. And I was oh, very, very absolutely. fortunate. We had a very supportive church community. Uh, my sons were altar servers. They were in the youth group. They were lectors as soon as my eldest turned 18. So you need to take a public speaking class so you can come and lecture with me on Sundays. And he was the youngest <laughs> lecturer, and now he's a phenomenal public speaker. He, he speaks all over the world. But, it, you know, we had that support. We had a village. And, and, I, and I tell single parents all the time that, you must reach out. If you don't have it in your own family, you've got to reach out to the community and get Absolutely. support. There's fabulous organizations out there, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, and mentoring groups, and 100 Black Men, and just a lot of opportunities, resources that and I encourage. And now it's at your fingertips, parents. you know. Now mm-hmm. they have it at their fingertips. You have a phone? You have a computer? Yep. You can and find if you, if you don't have one, you go to a library and you find one. But yes. everything is right at your fingertips. They have access now. The access exactly. that young people have, you know, we didn't even have anywhere near that. That's true. That's so true. Their access to information. Yep. Yes. Yep. There's information everywhere. There's no excuse these days. If you don't have a right. village, guess what? You can create your own. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, and, and it takes that, you know, none of us do this alone. And, um, you know, I say to people that, you know, you see people with accolades and all of these awards and everything else, they don't do it alone. Nobody. No, does. it's impossible. You always have to find the backstory. Because your tribe. You got to find your tribe, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. You got to find your tribe. And, and more, more than likely, you know, it's never put out there how they got there. You, you know, yeah. you see the successes, but trust me, right. it takes a lot. And it takes a lot that's of people right. to make one person successful. And that's where the village exactly. comes into play and the support. Exactly. Is, exactly. But, yeah. you know, I want to move on a little bit with you. Yeah. Um, it's lovely talking about your family. I think it was, that's a great, great, you know, intro into 
our conversation here. Tell us about being in Miami for 25 years now. I mean, you have really taken Miami, you know, by the city <laughs> and well, moved actually, through it. Right, right. I've actually been here almost 31 years. Um, wow. I've been in the tourism and hospitality industry for 25 of those years. But, um, but I've been here, as I say, over 30 years. I absolutely love it. It, of course, has its downside like anywhere. But I will sure. say that I, whenever I'm away, I'm, I'm happy to get back. I'm overjoyed to get back. Every time I drive over the causeway to go into Miami Beach, I send up a, a thank you um, for living in such a phenomenal region. And the diversity here is wonderful, fabulous. I love that. 100%. So many cultures. And, and you can have the opportunity to know people from all different backgrounds. And I love that there's so much to do. There's always a concert somewhere, music, live music, art, theater, of course the beaches and the nightlife. But there's so much more. Um, and the community it's of business so culturally people, diverse. It is. It is. So when I got involved um, in in the tourism industry, I got involved with different organizations and just loved the networking, loved the people that I was meeting. You know, South Florida can be a scary place with a lot of scammers and and fly by night people. But when you get engaged in these associations of professionals, you you still come across a few, but much, much less. And you can surround yourself with professionals that can help boost your career, that can help support your business. And so I'm a big, big proponent of networking, creating relationships, um, cultivating those relationships. You don't go into something and sell something overnight. You, you create a relationship with people so they feel comfortable with you, they trust you, they know you, and that's who you do business with. And so exactly. I'm a big, big proponent of that. Mm-hmm. So what led you to the hospitality industry and tourism? So that's a very interesting um, journey. When I first came to Florida, I signed up for a temporary um, employment agency because I wanted to kind of see what the job market was, was about. So I signed up to work with Kelly Services, and I was going oh, on different that. jobs. Remember Kelly Services? So I went yes, to different things, and it was a lot of fun doing temporary work with different people and so on. And then eventually, I actually was hired by Kelly Services to be the assistant to their regional director. And oh, so I actually okay. worked as a staff person for Kelly Services, which was wonderful. Um, and during that period, I, was, I got a job in private banking. Um, I was working for Centrust Bank that was run by David Paul at the time. And a lot of, you may know, a lot of bad things happened with him. He, he stole a lot of money from the bank. He was doing a lot of, of um, Ill, Ill, illegal things. So when the government came in, they um, swooped in and wanted to take over all of the um, information. And at that time, I worked in the board of directors' office, and my boss wanted to um, destroy the minute books. And she was trying to protect uh, David Paul. 
And I was like, are you kidding me? We can't do that. And I grabbed up a bunch of books and I went up to the managing agent's office and gave them to him and let him know that you need to come down right now and get these books because I think they're going to get destroyed. Well, long story short, um, all the management team was fired, and so support staff like myself were scrambling to find new jobs, and the few jobs that were there we were all applying for because we wanted to stay in the company, and the managing agent needed an assistant. So I applied for that job, and when he went to interview me, he remembered me. And he said, you're the type of woman I want working for me. And I ended up working for okay. him um, when the bank, uh, until the bank closed, which it took a couple of years. And then after that, I went on to work with Chase Private Banking. But a manager came in that was just disgusting, the way he is very unethical. He was doing a lot of bad things, but he was my, he became my immediate report. And so I said to myself, you know what, I can't work for this man. He's, he's unethical. I need to look around for another job. So I looked around for another job, and I saw an opening in a publishing company. I said, you know, that sounds interesting because I like to read. I think it's fun to publish things, not realizing the publishing company really published visitor magazines. And it was a small family-owned business. Anyway, I applied for the job, and they gave me a grammar test, which was so funny because um, – English was my favorite subject, and I was excellent at it. And I got 100% on this test they gave me. And then I interviewed with the publisher. He liked me very much, and he hired me. So I ended up working for that company for 21 years. And the progression wow. went from, yes, yeah, so they hired me. They, they wanted to do a Spanish-English um, bridal magazine. So I went through working with that iteration. That didn't work out, but they kept me on, and they had this um, – tourism magazine that was in English and Spanish that they um, distributed all over South Florida. And then, so I worked as that office manager there, and then 9-11 came. And when 9-11 wow. came, yeah. um, the, the, the advertising industry just went down very bad. Absolutely. Um, Everywhere. And, yeah. And so my publisher said, you know, we love you, we'd love to keep you, but we can't afford an office manager. What we need are salespeople. So you can either do sales or you can look for another job. <laughs> so I was more so. worried about looking for another job in that environment. And so because I, I'd worked in the back office or in the, you know, I knew the, the magazine very, very well. It was a terrific product. I said, I'll do sales. But I can't do sales trucking up and down with my briefcase or telemarketing or anything like that. I'm going to network. And I realized that joining organizations like the Miami Beach Chamber and the Greater Miami Convention Visitors Bureau and the Hotel Association put me in front of prospects that wanted to hear about my product, that wanted to hear about my oh, service. I wasn't just cold calling and trying to mess with, you know, interrupt someone's day and all of that. So it was, to me, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, this is so fabulous and it's fun. You go out. And that's what it's about, business, networking. Exactly. <laughs> so that's when it all began. And, and, and I ended up um, being the best salesperson the company had ever had. I was increasing sales by 20,000 every year. And so um, within a 10-year period, I had done about 800,000 increased sales. And I was making a ton of money. And I was involved with 16 different organizations. 
and sat on boards and committees and, you know, just it was an incredible um, whirlwind. So is that what led you to um, create ROI Media Consultants? So that's uh, um, also an interesting transition. So what happened was I got a little bit cocky, I think, because I was doing so incredibly well and making all this money. And I went to Brazil with um, a friend of mine, and it changed my life. I loved every minute I went to Rio and to Curitiba uh, uh, um, and to uh, Sao Paulo. And I re- at that time, this was about six years ago, the Brazilian tourist market was very um, affluent and heavy. And I said, you know what? I want to create my own magazine. I want to create a Brazilian luxury visitor magazine. And my girlfriend was Brazilian. And we were going to go into partnership. So I approached my publisher and I said, you know, I'd love if you guys would do this. I will um, be an independent contractor with you. I'll still work selling the English and Spanish, but I want to have my own Brazilian magazine. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't really give me an answer. So I moved forward, invested money, invested time, and created a prototype. And months down the road, they turned to me and said, no, you can't do that. That's in competition to us. And I don't know how that you could possibly do that. I said, what do you mean? I I will be bringing you additional business. I'm not going to be in competition after 21 years. Why would I do that? Well, they did not see my point and basically said they would sue me. And so I got very upset. After all these years, you can't trust me, da 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 and I quit. Okay. Well, I, I was on April Fool's Day 2013, <laughs> April 1st. And um, I said, you know, I had money in the bank, da 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 so I'm investing in all, and then we had an investor that when he heard that my publisher was going to sue us, he pulled out. So oh, everything collapsed, no. and I lost my savings, and my partner took off. She had to find a job that was going to make her money, and so here I was left with no job, no cushion, no savings, and um, not very happy with myself. But I said to myself, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I can do this. And everybody and his mother wanted to hire me because I'm, I've had a great reputation. And I said yes to everyone. And so that was my first mistake. I am selling charter cruises and I'm selling um, ads on Beach Channel and I'm selling uh, for this other publication, Tourist Magazine, and I was trying to do all these different things because I wasn't saying no to anyone. And then there was um, all these different opportunities that were coming up, and, oh, I can do this, and I can do that. So I was literally just flying around doing all these different things and not doing anything. And wearing anything so well. many hats. Where, yeah, not doing anything well. So that was a learning experience. Um, but then about a year into that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so... Right. Before you go there, I want to digress a little bit. I want to ask mm-hmm. you about, you know, the way you collaborated without ego also. And are you saying that that got you in trouble um, because you were saying yes to everyone and your ego made you feel as though you could do all these things? Mm-hmm. Was that it? Okay. And um, I see that. 
Go ahead. You want to, you're thinking about it? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking if it was ego or if it was um, just not fully understanding. I, I, I didn't understand what it is to be an entrepreneur at all. Right. And, right. Um, you know, all of these things sounded so interesting. And I even had a girlfriend say to me, you know what, you need to pick one thing and focus on it. And I said, well, I really can't because this is so interesting and this could make a lot of money and this other thing is, is, a, is a new thing that I want to be a part of it, the growing of it. And so, you know, I had all of these reasons why I couldn't just focus on one thing. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it was, it was challenging. Yeah, because, you know, when you collaborate without ego, it gives you an opportunity to kind of sit back and, and, and digest everything that's going on and maneuver or navigate, you know, a different way. And mm-hmm. you said your ego had got the best of you, and that's why I said we're yeah. not collaborating without ego. You were collaborating right. with ego. So it's, right. it's a little bit different. So we got a little fuzzy right. there. And I, right. I saw that you, um, you created an app. Did that go to the app that you were creating? Um, I'm trying to recall the new customer that. enhancement app for hospita- for the hospitality industry. Oh, so that is actually a, um, a someone else has created the app and wants want me to help them sell it. But I don't I, I'm I don't have those kind of skills to create an app, but. I can sell it. <laughs> oh, okay. So that was another collaboration yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that very interesting. So let's let's talk about how you became so passionate after all of that in reference to women issues. Oh well, I've always um, always been passionate about social justice. Period. Um, as I said, from a young age, I was involved in the anti-war movement and, and still am right. involved with social justice issues. But when I got involved at the chamber and became involved with the Women's Business Council, I was a member when it first first started. And um, the, the first co-chairs, powerful women, I just I loved it. It resonated with me so much. And then a couple of years later, I was asked to be co-chair under um, Morel Enloe, actually, from Keller okay. Williams. And working with her was so fun. She's, she's just amazing, amazing woman. And it was a matter of just immersing myself in it because it was a, such a, a powerful experience for me to work with professional women who were strong, who were brilliant, and it just, I just loved every minute of it. I'm heterosexual, but I find myself just falling in love with women all the time because of, the, of who we are as people. We're, well, we're that's emotions. that girl power. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. And, and it's the type of thing that it just it, it, it re- revitalizes me to be around strong women that have um, a focus on doing things that are, um, changing the world, so I'm 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 loving it, and I stay with it because I believe that our young girls need to understand the power that they have as well. So yeah. one of the things that excites me about working with women is that they women mentor other women and mentor young girls, and there's opportunities 
to make this next generation of young ladies really, really um, powerful and and changing things. Well, we are the yeah. mothers of, you know. Yeah. We are the mothers of Earth. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you this, Deanne. What was it like for you being the first black woman elected to chair on the Miami Women's Business Council? Oh. Were there any fears so, or challenges initially? No. And, you know, what's interesting, and I think it's, again, going back to my childhood, my, my background, I didn't grow up, except for those few incidences that I mentioned, I didn't grow up with a um, a racial attitude as far as I can't do this because I'm black. So okay. it was more of a self-inflicted limitation because of my weight as opposed to being black. So when I became older and kind of came into my own, I did not really see that. And because I'm very light, a lot of people don't even realize I'm black sometimes. So, and especially in South Florida, it could be Spanish, it could be Brazilian, da, da, da. So I really did not, I have to be fair and say, I don't feel that I got a lot of the um, restrictions that other that people that are are darker or you know have more of the quote unquote look of being black, so it was easier for me to kind of maneuver through some of these situations. But what was interesting was there was a man on the board of governors that was very interested in bringing more diversity to the chamber, and especially in Miami Beach. And it's still not as diverse as it needs to be. And that's one of the things that I try to do as chair of the Women's Business Council. You'll notice when you came, there's a lot of women of color there. So I make oh, a special effort to reach out to people of color to get involved in Miami Beach because there isn't a large um, presence there. But when I was, he was the one that nominated me to be the chair of the Pillar Trustees because he said we need more people of color in leadership. And because we didn't have a lot of people of color in the membership period, much less people that were involved in leadership, um, and he saw me as someone that was very engaged, he nominated me for that position and I was accepted. And I'm still the only uh, person of color that was in a top leadership role um, as chair of the Pillar Trustees. We have, I think, I want to say 70 members of our board between the Pillar Board and the Board of Governors, and five of us are people of color. So it's still, yeah, it's still, so I struggle with that. I, I really want to see, and Miami Beach is a, is a fabulous place, but it's not as diverse as, as other areas of Miami. Right. And so, I noticed that um, when, um, I noticed that, I just wanted to interject there, I noticed that, you know, mm-hmm. when I was there and we, I spoke about the real estate aspect of that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm in Naples, and we don't have much diversity at all here. So I, I definitely understand that and have felt that here, but not not to the point of there was any racial despair when it came to myself working in the high-end market here. But mm-hmm. um, it can be very lonely, and when I was in Miami, I never really ran into many African Americans that were working in the high-end market there either. And I hear right. a lot of the agents talk to me about that, you know, being able to walk in those shoes is very difficult mm-hmm. for them on that coast. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Me being here, I, I never think about it at all. I 
definitely thought about it when I first got here. I thought nobody's here that looks like me, but you right. know, when it came to doing the work and showing up, I just took the professional approach as I normally do with any business I've ventured into. But like I right. said, when I was in Miami at the Miami office there, I didn't run into many at all, and I found that very, you know, mm-hmm. different to be there yeah. where it was so much more diversity, and that was the reason I did come over there because I needed to feel that for my own spirit, soul, and energy. <laughs> That's right. why I started coming over there. But then I noticed, wow, it's not much different than where I am. I mean, there's right. no diversity, but here there's none either when it comes to people right. of color like myself that look like me. There's a lot of Spanish there, a lot of Brazilian right. and so forth, but right. that's not what I'm talking about. Right. So I right. found that interesting. That's why I brought it up at the meeting when I was there, and thank you for inviting me. Um, oh, absolutely. You're always welcome. But, yeah, it's very true. There are certain industries, even in a, such a diverse place as South Florida, there's certain exactly. industries that um, do not have a lot of people of color, and it's um, and certain organizations and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. We still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> oh yes, we always will have a lot of work to do. I believe in my heart. So, yeah. where were there any? Well, I won't ask that question just yet. Where did your leadership skills come from, and how did you develop them? I think I have to say it came from my mother. Um, My mother was a very, very strong woman. She stepped into places that black women normally don't step into, and she did it unapologetically. She, uh, my father had a, um, a bipolar disorder, which meant that my mother had to really be the backbone of the family. And so she actually went to, went, went to uh, psychiatric training so that she could be a psychiatric nurse and, um, and, and help with my dad. And they were married for 56 years before she passed. But her strength and her leadership, I have to say, um, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I emulated her and um, just became the type of person that was a servant leader, I think, because that's what my mom was. She she served. She was always in the trenches with people. She was always in supervisory positions, but she was always in the trenches with the people that she worked with. And so I think I kind of got that from her. And um, I'm the type of person that... I don't want to, I like being in management. I like being an influencer. And I think it's more about inspiring people, motivating people, and setting an example, doing by, you know, learning by doing um, that I like about leadership. And so, um, yeah, I like it. (laughs) Great. No, I can tell. I can tell when I was there. I saw you sitting at the helm, and I see that the women and the men respect you, and um, apparently you're doing a great job. So, Thank you know, you. I can, yeah, cheers to you for that. So let me ask Thank you something. I, I want to circle back to you having being di- diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. Yeah, so that happened um, my second year. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, my second year in as being an entrepreneur, and um, I was actually visiting my son in um, Baltimore, 
and I happened to feel a lump on my breast. And I was like, wait, what, what is that? And so um, long story short, I got um, diagnosed, and it was stage four. And wow. I did my lymph nodes, and it was um, pretty scary time. And uh, my sister, my baby sister, who became a nurse, was um, thankful. I'm so thankful to her because she went with me on all my appointments to explain what was going on. But, you know, I went through a really confusing time because you get a lot of information thrown at you. And from both the medical, from the, um, from the holistic, and so I was very torn because I really wanted to go a holistic route. I really wanted to do natural healing. But at stage four, my family was very um, afraid that um, my taking the time to try holistically would not be a good idea. And so I went ahead and did the conventional treatments, the chemo, the surgery, the radiation, and it was rough. Um, and at the same time, I also was doing a lot of holistic um, food, changed my diet, um, was doing a lot of um, uh, black seed oil, turmeric, you know, all of the things that they, you know, yeah. um, uh, the teas and all of that. So I was doing that all at the same time. So I kind of mixed the both, and I, and I believe that it helped get, keep me strong, um, because I, I didn't slow down too much. I, my, I lost all my hair, and I was rocking these wigs and rocking hats and still out there networking and doing my thing. If I needed a, um, at the time, the, um, the chemo had given me neuropathy, and there was a point where it was very difficult for me to walk. So I was going with a cane. I had a pink cane. Um, I had a walker at one point, um, and I was still out there. <laughs> right, and, um, yeah. And doing my thing. I guess that was not the breakdown for you. You said no no, way. No, but you know, I think about it now and I realize that that fed me, that that kept me strong, being able to still be out there and being around people. And the hospitality industry is an incredible industry. And I didn't realize how many people loved me until I went through that because I didn't, I, I let people know what I was going through. And the outpouring of support and love was absolutely unbelievable. I was right. just supported on so many levels, emotionally, financially. Um, you know, it, it was just incredible, incredible. So it was, would you it was say, blessing. Would you say that was one of the biggest mind shifts for you at that time? I would say yes. I, I would. Okay. Um, I think that... It, it really woke me up to the, all the people around me that cared about me. And um, I, was, I was able to ask and receive help. And, you know, being a strong woman, you don't need any help, you, da, 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 you know, and all of that. But it put me in a position where I did have to ask for help on, on many different levels. And people responded beautifully and abundantly. Okay. And, um it was just, it was a really, I, and I tell people this, it was actually, I was grateful that I got cancer. And it sounds bizarre, but it put me in a better place um, physically because I was more conscious of my um, nutrition. I lost 40 pounds. I was, you know, doing more to um, 
uh, learn about meditation and to, to get myself in a better place emotionally. I will say that once I was done with chemo and my taste buds came back, it was harder for me to stay on a good nutritional diet. Um, so I'm still I'm struggling with that again. But um, but it was it was an amazing experience, and um, unfortunately, the cancer did come back, um, not in my breath, but in my bones. And so I'm in treatment now, and will be for the rest of my life. I have to get okay. um, shots and uh, take pills twice a day. But I sit, and I'm dealing with neuropathy, which was an after effect of the chemo. But it. Still, I'm grateful because I'm, it's treatable. It's not a death sentence. Um, and, you know, it's like anyone that has a, a chronic illness. You just do what you have to do every day. And I'm wow. grateful for, you know, the, the medical advances that have come along that I'm able to be treated. So how are you, how do you see yourself navigating through all of that now in life? that you've, you beat the stage four cancer and now you see, you know, you found out that it came back and it's in your bones. Right. How are you navigating right. through that? Right. So, I mean, I, I basically just say, well, um, I just have to be in treatment for the rest of my life. So I go every month for my shots and I take my pills every day. And it's just something that I've accepted is, is a new normal for me right now. And okay. as okay. I say, I'm grateful that I can be treated. And I'm grateful that, um, you know, it's, it's not debilitating. So it's hard, you know, sometimes with the neuropathy in my legs and my hands, it's challenging. But, um, again, I, one of the things that my daughter says this to me, you know, it can always be worse. And I realize that that's so true. There's so many people I wouldn't want to trade places with. So I'm not certainly not going to um, feel sorry for myself because I have an awful lot going for me, and so I, you definitely I do. do my best to live in gratitude every day and just say, you know, um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for what I have and for the joys I have in my life and and my health because it could it could definitely be a lot worse. Oh, this is so true. And you know, Diane, Deanne, I'm sorry, called you Diane twice already. Deanne. Because <laughs> okay. I have a really good girlfriend named Diane, so every time the D word comes out. But anyway, um, you know, it, it's really interesting because, you know, life, I always tell people life is not designed by coincidence. It's designed by experience. And having all these different experiences, you know, makes you a very well-rounded, grounded person, and you pretty much understand that, you know, life is about being grateful and giving, you know, then the more you give, the more you get. And mm-hmm. trust me, absolutely, you, you are a very blessed woman to be thank here you. with us. And, and we would, oh God, I think we would all really miss you. So Aww. because you have become a champion for the youth, you know, the development yeah. of youth, I hear the passion in your voice when you talk about, you know, certain elements of your, 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 your business and your life and what you do for people. And it's a beautiful thing. And I'm just glad that you're still here with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You and I so do much. love our youth. Anything, anytime I can be around children, I, I love it. They're just so amazing and so spectacular. I think they're the best people on the planet. So oh, I God. do love, love being around you. They're the heroes yeah. of tomorrow. You know? Yeah, they're our absolutely. Heroes of tomorrow. 
and we have Absolutely. to keep nurturing them to, to take have that to. on. Yes, yes. So I want to wrap this up with you. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. You have pretty much shared so much and such, so much genuineness and honesty and, and just being open with us here. If you had to ask people to ask themselves one question on a daily basis, what would that question be, Deanne? Am I contributing to making this planet a better place in whatever way, whether it's smiling at a stranger, whether it's supporting a child's desire to sing, no matter what it is, every day when we go to sleep, I think we should ask ourselves, what did I do today to make things better, to make a positive impact? And it doesn't have to be anything huge and dramatic. Like I say, it can be something as simple as smiling at someone or giving a kind word uh, to someone that feels down, encouraging someone that's having a hard day. Um, but I feel that we are, we're just taking up space if we are not contributing to making things better for people, other people. That is so true because it doesn't cost us anything for Nothing. any of those. Nope. Wow. This and it makes you feel good. <laughs> yes, it does. Definitely. Yeah. Smiling at someone does make me feel good because it mm-hmm. opens me up. So I I love to stay open. And I find, you know, I think you're the same way from having this conversation with you. And I'll tell you, Deanne, this has been an amazing conversation and a great way to start my Sunday. So I thank you for that. Well, I thank you for the opportunity. You are are a joy to be around as well. And I know you're out there in Naples, but I have to make a trip out to your neck of the woods one day soon. Anytime. Thank you. Oh, thank- wow, what a journey from a true champion. She has definitely survived it all and still a servant leader for women and youth of tomorrow. Deanne Connolly Graham, we love you. Guys, you can follow Deanne at Deanne C. Graham on Instagram, and you can also find her on Facebook. My name is Jane Bond, and I am your host. You can follow me at Jane Bond underscore, 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 and you can also find me on Facebook at Jane Bond, TBG. Once again, from execution to excellence, and please do not forget to subscribe, rate, and review us at iTunes.